I think mega churches are like an operating system. Um, you can have on this mega church operating system, you can have a liberal app running and a conservative app running. Um, so you might have a small group where you have people say, you know, they're teaching if this small group, they're teaching Calvinism and their, you know, biblical sexuality and people are being challenged and growing in their faith. And the church is like, great, they're here and they're doing that. As long here. As they're here. So it works. <laughs> and then you have this other group. It's teaching like now where there's this, there's gay affirming small group or gay affirming teacher or pastor. And um, they, they're denying all kinds of stuff. And it's like, well, they're wrestling through things and it's good that they're here. As long as they're here, yeah. that's good. And they still have Jesus. Yeah. It's all about Jesus. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And our topic today is, why do churches go liberal, sub, sub point, so why do Christians go liberal? Because if Christians don't, churches don't. If churches do, Christians did. Why do churches and Christians go liberal? And how to keep a church and Christians from going liberal, liberal theologically. We'll talk about what we mean. This is not about politics. This is about theology and the church. My guest today is Michael Clary. Michael, thank you for being here. This is your second time. Appreciate you coming back. Say hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Wonderful. Great to have you. So maybe not everybody who's listening today caught the first one. So uh, let's do some bio on you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. Like you're a pastor. Where do you pastor? I'm in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a little bit ashamed of Ohio right now because we just voted to enshrine abortion in our state constitution. So I might start saying I'm from Cincinnati, Iowa. Yeah, well, we're in Maryland, so same boat. Yeah. All right. yeah I'm, but I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, we're, we're downtown close to the University of Cincinnati. And I planted a church here called Christ the King Church, uh, Southern Baptist Church. Um, I'm on the founders, Tom Askell wing of the SBC. Yeah. Um, we had Tom on this podcast. I saw that. Uh -huh. Yeah, I did. I did see that. Um, I lots of respect for Tom. Um, so, yeah, I've, I planted in 2010 is when we started our first official public worship gathering. And I've been here 13 years, been here ever since. So it'll be 14 years this January. Awesome, man. You married? How long? Married for 24 years. It'll be 25 this June. Um, Kids? And I have four children. I have a, an adult 18-year-old daughter and three boys after that, 17, 15, and almost 13. So I'll have four teenagers in my house. Um, well, my daughter's at college, but when she's home, I'll have four teenagers in my house uh, Pretty for wild. Another, another year or so. Man, I rem that's a distant memory for me. We were there having four sons and a foster son and a lot of their friends over all the time. We had kids eating all our food forever. But, um, yeah, we were there, but it's a distant memory now. We're in 13 grandchildren. My wife's keeping the baby, one of the babies right now. So Wonderful. Yeah, it's Great worth waiting for, brother. Hang in there. By the way, do you have any animals, household, you know, have a dog or something? I have a dog. Her name is Nia. She's a mutt. Uh, hmm. She's she's kind of, uh, she looks like a German Shepherd lab mix. That That's sounds what, pretty nice. Yeah, she's she's a real pretty dog, real friendly, um, about 10 years old, and just lays around all day. Sweet. And one more thing that's a little personal. What's that shirt you're wearing? We want to see more of that. We're intrigued. This yeah. is Thomas Soul. Um, so it's a riff on the, I don't know if you can see the bottom. I'll, I'll lean up here a little bit. It says soul at the bottom. Uh-huh. 
Uh, so it's kind of a, a take on the Obama hope and change uh-huh. uh, iconic the look. image, but but Thomas Sowell is um, is an economist, and now that doesn't uh, <laughs> he's an everythingist, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, so he's a Catholic scholar, think tank kind of guy, but um, he is a brilliant writer. Like the book Basic Economics that he wrote is is fantastic because he articulates he put into words things that I had always thought kind of my instincts. But when I read it, I was like, yes, yes. He's saying what I've always thought, but didn't know how to say. Hmm. Um, nice. And of course he says a lot of other things cause I'm not as smart <clears throat> as him and could never have come up with all this on my own. But, um, but the, the, the book basic economics is a, um, it's a good, it'd be a great textbook for economics, but it's very readable. And it, and it, so what I love about him is that he's, uh, very intellectual, very brilliant. And he's a, he he breaks the stereotype that a lot of people have about well you know black people are always liberal and i'm like you know one of the premier intellectuals conservative intellectuals in our country is african-american man so do you wear that shirt around town do you wear it out in the streets and do you get many responses um nobody ever says anything they don't even know who he is do they people don't have any idea who he is maybe you'd get stoned if they did (laughs) (laughs) maybe uh i don't know but it if they, he's a reasonable guy. I mean, he just. Yeah, he's, he's brilliant. That's uh, a picture of him much long, longer ago. He was younger there. He's, he's got to be in his 80s, upper 80s now. I don't know what. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, but he's, he still looks great. I saw a video of him not too long ago. Um, he still looks sharp. Yeah. Um, and he, of course, his brain is. He's still he's smart, isn't he? Sharp as a tack. Yeah. yeah. Well, he could lose half his IQ and still be miles ahead of me. So <laughs> not right. hard. Hey, Both so Michael, here's what we're talking about today. I already introduced it. Let me say it again because it's been a while. So we're talking about why do churches and therefore Christians, why do Christians and therefore churches go liberal and how to keep a church and Christians from going liberal. So let's dive in. We have some questions we're going to respond to. Question number one is let's just define the thing. What do we mean by liberal, like I'll answer again. We're not talking about politics here. We're talking about theologically liberal, biblically literal, liberal. So what do we mean by liberal? You want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, liberal, the word liberal um, is a, it's a junk drawer word. It's kind of a catch-all for um, the degree to which people accommodate unbelief or institutions or individuals accommodate unbelief, um, but they still want to retain some form of the the institution or the belief that they have denied. Um, there's a there's a text in, let's see if I can pull it up here quickly. There's a text in Second um, Timothy um, where it talks about people who have, they, um, they deny. They have a form of godliness. That's the one. But yeah, denying its power. Yeah, there's a form. There's a form of godliness. So with within a, a liberal Christian, they want to call themselves Christian. Yes. They want to they want to say I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm totally about Christian, but they they want to redefine it and reshape it according to whatever their sensibility is. And whenever you do that, you're accommodating unbelief. And generally, um, you're that's almost always. I, in fact, I can I can't think of a, of any other explanation for it other than it's a way to accommodate sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times, whenever you see liberal Christians, they're they want to call themselves Christian, but still say, "Well, Jesus is gay affirming," or um, I, w- "I still want to believe in Jesus, but I don't want to believe what the Bible says about name your issue." Um, liberalism is an accommodation to unbelief, and 
Yeah. So Did what you, are some of, some of the other issues? You named one there. I want to I want to have a Jesus who's gay affirming. What other Jesuses or Bibles do they want? What other doctrines do they want or not want? Yeah. Well, theological liberalism will um, will change shape uh, from one generation to the next. So if you go back, let's say a hundred years, there's this uh, famous showdown in the Presbyterian world hmm. between um, Fosdick, Harry Emerson Fosdick, and J. Gresham Machen. Machen's the man. Machen's the man. He, he's, he was by the way, can I, can I interrupt you? Don't forget where yeah. you're going. He's a Baltimore guy. So oh, is that right? He's okay. buried here in Baltimore, and my son and I went to visit his his tomb in, in uh, Greenmount Cemetery. By the way, if you go there and you conceal carry, you want to carry that day. <laughs> it's, it's no longer the beautiful part of town it used to be. It's kind of uh, scary down there. But we went there beautiful big stone with a sword on it like he was a soldier of the faith and all but okay go ahead okay yeah so the showdown was between machen is a conservative and fosdick is a liberal and fosdick he he was uh he was kind of casting aspersion on machen and calling them the fundamentalists and then um i think uh, machen called fosdick the modernist but in our modern terminology, we would think, well, the one guy's a liberal and the other guy's a conservative. Um, but the issue at, at hand then was was things like the authority of Scripture, uh, because at that time, everybody was reading their Bible and trying to make cases for what they believe based on some biblical argument. And that's not the case today. But but 100 years ago, and this goes back to like, you know, German theologians in 19th and 18th century, but it's the idea is that God's we we make room for unbelief by denying god's word uh and it's it's what satan did in the garden you know uh did god really say denying god's word um you will not surely die you know denying the truth of god you know it, it that's what liberals do liberals are they are taking a page out of satan's playbook and trying to import that into an individual so they'll deny the virgin birth they'll deny uh the doctrine of creation they'll deny um you know the some essential Christian truth, like the the atonement. They'll say, they'll deny the divinity of Christ. They want to find all these, they want to keep the form, but deny the power. They empty it out of its content. They'll deny the exclusive truth claims of Jesus Christ. They'll deny yeah. that he's the way, the truth, and life, the only way to the Father. They've got many other yeah. ways. They'll deny the doctrine of hell and turn it into yep. something else. Hell will actually empty over time as people in the light of that day make better decisions. Um, <laughs> just all, all kinds of things. Fundamental doctrines that go against the grain of of what? Of human psyches in our day. Um, yeah. And... Uh, are we talking about something that's just theoretical? Like, is this just like in some scholar's book or something? Or is this stuff really happen? Is it happening in your church? It's happening in our church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, because so in, in, in modern times, people aren't arguing about the virgin birth or that sort of thing as much, but they are arguing about um, morality, ethics, anthropology, um, social justice. Um, what is the nature of, you know, the the church's mission, that sort of thing. Um, but but the world is everywhere. The influence of the world is all around us. And so we're always kind of picking up signals and messages that, that tell us uh, what's true and what to believe. And we just sort of internalize that. And we don't always uh, evaluate what we hear and what's told to us in light of scripture. It's just the default. It's what we take to be true. And then 
um, what liberalism is, is, is you, that's your starting point. What you want to be true, what you believe to be true intuitively is what you take to be true. And then wherever you run into the Bible, uh, an issue that contradicts that, well, then you try to find some way around that. Massage or, the Bible. Yeah. Or you just get rid of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Throw that part uh, out, but I'm still hanging on to Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's like the megachurch version of liberalism. It, they're not making a liberal argument from scripture. Rather, they just never open the Bible. They never read it. Never teach anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the sermons are about how you can be more successful or whatever. Yeah. Just cherry pick a verse here and there yeah. to appease those who still have respect for the Bible. And so I've noticed, and I find that over time, you know, I'm an older guy. I've, I've had time. I've noticed over time that a lot of times when people leave our church because they're struggling with some doctrine, they don't like Romans 9 and God's sovereignty and human salvation, and they know that's what the passage really teaches. I can't massage it into something else. It says what it says, but I don't like it. They wind up in one of those big churches, gushy churches, where you're never going to bump into a doctrine that you don't like, and you can still tell yourself, I have Jesus. We're about yeah. Jesus. We talk. And it might be that the pastor in that church is really a saved guy, and it might be that you know they're, they're really believers there, but um, you, you'd never— the people who have the form but not the the heart of the thing, uh, they never get challenged in those churches. So over time, they they migrate to those churches. Those churches can be great magnets for great collectors of wannabe liberal Christians. You agree? Yeah, totally, totally. And they they're pragmatic, so their 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 ecclesiology is built upon what will maximize people Our coming size. in. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. their their doctrine of the church. Is like you know the the kingdom of God is equivalent to who shows up here on Sunday. So what we need to do is get as many people here as we can, and they're always thinking of you know mission equals growth. Church, yes. Church, more people showing up. Yeah. Um, and so everything is kind of so catered whatever, to yeah. getting more and more people coming. Yeah. Whatever's good for that is good. Whatever's bad for that, bad. Yeah. And, yeah. and what's interesting you mentioned mega churches is that I've. I've, I've tried to figure out this phenomenon because like if basically like a conservative person is somebody who holds, they have more things that they hold to. So like a conservative, let's yes. say you open your Bible and everything the Bible affirms and let's say you could just list them all out and there's a hundred things uh, just for sake of uh, give example. Um, a conservative would say, okay, the Bible says this. Um, so I have to affirm these 100 things and believe them. Now, there might be conservatives that disagree about, well, what about number 75 or what about number 68? But generally, it's like we all know it's like we have to hold these things. Um, so what a megachurch will do is build a ministry where they don't ever bring those things out and present them. Now, they may internally hold to those beliefs. If you press them. Yeah, but you don't talk about them. <clears throat> yeah. And so you can have so a liberal, they might believe things one through 15. They believe, I believe there was a guy named Jesus and he died. And I believe that, you know, it's good to follow his teaching. Um, a, a liberal could believe that, you know, James says demons believe in God and they shudder. So it's like, there's some form of belief that even unbelievers will have. So, um, so what, what a mega church does is they say, we're never going to venture beyond the, the most core essential things that everybody can agree that to, even like. unbelievers. Yes. Yeah. That they'll like so, yeah, so unbelievers will say, well, Jesus is a great moral teacher. Well, Christians believe that, but we believe he's much more than that. But they'll say, you know, in church, Jesus was a great moral teacher. We need to follow his example. Now let's talk about how you can follow Jesus's teaching in your marriage. Let's talk about 
uh, you know, here's a little nugget from what Jesus said. How about this parable and how this can help you to be successful in your business? And it, they bypass all of the points of potential offense or potential friction or disagreement. But the friction is where the growth happens. You don't you don't mm. grow when you're always being affirmed all the time. Mm. You grow when somebody says, Steve, brother, you're in sin. You need to repent. That's when you grow because you're being confronted with something. Mm. Um, and that's what conservatives do. So I, I think with, within liberalism, you might have in these mega churches lots of people who are true Christians, and they've just never, they, either yeah. through their own initiative, they might study or read or whatever and come to conclusions, but there's never anything within the church organization that will that will be a point of friction. And the Christians don't even seem to know that they're supposed to be that. They don't even know yeah. that they're not really being fed the whole counsel of God. So they might have really have big, like you said, have big hearts for Christ, but man, they're in a church that is just seriously deficient. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, an illustration. Let me run this by you. I've you can you can tell me if you think this is crazy, but a way that I've tried to understand mega churches. Um, so as a if you think of like a computer, um, you open up your computer, MacBook or when or or PC. You the operating system was what opens up, and the operating system is the a platform that enables all different kinds of individual apps to run or individual programs to run. I think mega churches are like an operating system. Um, you can have on this mega church operating system, you can have a liberal app running and a conservative app running. Um, so you might have a small group where you have people say, you know, they're teaching if this small group, they're teaching Calvinism and they're, you know, biblical sexuality and people are being challenged and growing in their faith. And the church is like, great. They're here and they're doing that here. They're here. So it works. <laughs> and then you have this other group that's teaching like now where there's this there's gay affirming small group or gay affirming teacher or pastor. And um, they they're denying all kinds of stuff. And it's like, well, they're wrestling through things and it's good that they're here. As long as they're here, yeah. that's good. And they still have Jesus. Yeah. It's all about Jesus. Whereas a conservative church, um, a conservative church is not trying to be an operating system where all these different ideas can just kind of have a space to operate. Hmm. Rather, the conservative church is like, no, there are particular doctrines and we run particular programs executed in a particular way based on convictions. And that 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 is going to shrink the the scope of people that might want to be a part of it. But if they're striving after faithfulness, they will be, you know, hopefully um, to the degree to which they're they're being faithful, then they are more honoring to God in that way. But they're not just trying to build a system for everybody to have a little sandbox for all these different so-called Christian groups mm. to play in. Does that make sense? Great illustration, brother. Made perfect sense. Love it. Preach it. So I'm looking back down at my notes again to see where we're supposed to be here. And we're talking about what do we mean by, <laughs> by, by liberal. And I think you defined that real well for us. I'm going to go to question number two. We've already kind of nibbled at it. We've talked about it a little bit. Let's make it a point here. So do churches go liberal? Do Christians go liberal? Do churches go liberal? Like really? Or are we just crying wolf or something? Are we just saying the sky is falling? Are we just you know, making a lot of noise because it plays well, because we're grouchy Christians or, you know, curmudgeon Christians or something. Do churches really go liberal? So to ask it is to answer it, right? Obviously, I'm looking for a, that's a yes or no question. The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> there. Okay, let's move on. That's definitive. <laughs> so uh, do they? So what in the Bible might, uh, might tip us off to the fact that, ooh, there's a chance churches might go liberal. Are there any warnings in the Bible? Like, I'm thinking of a few. Does anything come to your mind? Uh, Matthew seven fifteen is one. 
Um, well, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Um, so whenever you think of a wolf or a false prophet, what, what often we might conjure in our mind is this sinister looking guy that comes in and, um, and he's like, hello, church. I'm here to, I'm here to deceive you. Come over hmm. to my group. And we're hmm. going to talk about how Jesus is really a deceiver. You hmm. know, they don't do that. Yeah, um, that. They're, they're ravenous wolves. So they're bloodthirsty fangs. They are, you know, vicious creatures, but they present themselves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. So, mm -hmm. and, th and that's the thing. It's like we, the guy in the, in the seat next to you with the pew in front of you, um, the woman singing on the praise team, the guy giving announcements, the man preaching. Um, how do you know? I think there's the, at least the possibility that that person is presenting themselves in a way that I would agree to, but inwardly they're a ravenous wolf. So how do you know? Well, Jesus says, well, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Hmm. Um, and the fruit isn't always apparent on the surface. Um, right. it, it, it may take some time for that to be manifest, but I think that's, I think it's around all the time. People are, and not when I define liberalism as an accommodation to unbelief, that means there could be apostate people or people that are drifting from orthodoxy because they're trying to make room for unbelief. But it's the the principle is there to where they're they're still within the the institution or they're still with claiming some form of Christianity, but it's just been hollowed out of the of the truth of the gospel, the true content of scripture. Yep. Well, you, you pointed to those words of Christ. I think Paul echoes them in Acts chapter 20. He's got the Ephesian elders with him out in Miletus yeah. while he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He calls them out and he gives them this great charge. And part of that charge is, uh, you know, keep watching over the flock because savage wolves will come in among you. And then he mm -hmm. says, and men will rise up from within. So, yeah. so false teachers are going to come in from outside and they look like sheep. And false teachers are going to rise up from right within, inside of your membership, inside your pews, inside your you know your your classes or whatever. They're going to rise up inside. And so, was Paul just blowing steam? Was Paul crying wolf? Was he saying, "Oh, you don't really need to worry about that"? Paul's just you know an edgy guy. No, he's actually telling us exactly what the Lord Jesus told us. This is actually going to happen in real churches, like the church you pastor and the, and the church where I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I think we see it again in the churches of Asia Minor. Of those seven churches in Asia Minor in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, remember he's, the Lord says to one of them, for example, um, but I have this against you. You hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Hmm. And uh, he describes that doctrine a little bit. False doctrine does show up. It showed up in the churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And things, you know, one doctrine shows up and that leads to another and that leads to a practice. And now the church is on a slide. Yeah. You, you referred to the 1920s and the fundamentalist modernist controversy. By the way, I heard John MacArthur define what is a fundamentalist. Fundamentalist is no fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. <laughs> if you're John MacArthur, you can get away with that. I'm quoting him, folks. But anyway, so I, I will proudly wear that badge if I can define it as what Machen was, right? I'm a fundamentalist like Machen was. Yeah. I'm not a fundamentalist like the the church up the road here. But anyway, um, exactly what you said earlier, so American churches, I guess, just didn't realize what was going on, sent their best guys over to Germany 
to train in the be- in the great universities so that we would have respectability. You know, we have great scholars. And over there, those guys just got destroyed by German higher criticism that ripped the Bible to shreds and mm-hmm. unbelief everywhere. And they came back to America, and they became professors, and they became pastors. And so all the old mainline denominations, the old Presbyterian church, the old Lutheran church, the old, what am I missing, the Methodist churches, they all went down, man. They went down, and they, they haven't come back. They're still down. Um, so there's XYZ Methodist Church down the road from us. They don't believe anything yeah. we believe. There's a, a seminary that used to be, let's see which seminary was it? It's in New York. I can't think of the name right now. And this was publicized a few years ago. In their chapel service, they were confessing their sins to plants. I remember this. Remember this that one? Years. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, we're sorry, plants, what we've done to you. Have you seen the Sparkle Creed? Yeah, the Sparkle Creed. Yep, that's a good, not a good example. The spark, a more recent example. So, um, this is how it is in our days, and it was it was there in the 1920s, the fundamentalist modernist thing, and it's been there in all different times throughout church history. So, we were up in New Hampshire on this vacation, and every little town you go to has two, three, five churches, and none of them are actually churches. They're the church building, the shell of what was yeah. once a congregation. They were once believing people in there, probably preaching the gospel, believing the word of God, leading sinners to. Christ, building up believers and all that, and now one of them's a grocery store, and another one is turned into a home, and another one is just vacant and boarded up, and everywhere you go. Then we drove from there all the way to the coast of Maine, and all the way across, it was the same story, every little town we went through, and then all up the coast of Maine, and then into Maine, and up to Canada, and so on, and everywhere you go, this was the case. It was just hard mm-hmm. to find. Now and then, we would see a newer-looking church building, and uh, it appeared to be a real church that was actually active. So. Yeah. I think those are some of the shocking downstream remains of what happened in that fundamentalist, modernist controversy back in the 1920s. So this thing is for real. Yeah. Like if you had lived back before that, if you lived in 1900 and somebody said, see all these churches, they're all going to go away. You would have said, what? You know, yeah. you're, you're just scare tactics. You're, you're crazy. No, they actually all went away. Yeah. Well, if you accommodate unbelief, I mean, there's no power in it. There's no, there's yeah. no spirit of God in it. It's a, you're you're making room for uh, deadness, and you're, and you know the, you know Paul talks about this in First um, Corinthians five when he's talking about church discipline, and I I think of it as leaven, um, like the and I think of liberalism as as an an application or an appropriate parallel to what Paul is talking about. He says uh, mm-hmm. he had this guy that was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was tolerating it. Um, and Paul said, that's not good. And then he goes on to say, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole up? Mm, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And, and I think of that as so leaven, it's like, it just takes a little bit. And as you work it through dough, it just, it, it continues to spread. And so a church that doesn't, that, that doesn't actively think about, and that's what you say is this liberalism in our churches. And I'm like, yeah, it's leaven. It's, it's everywhere because mm. unbelief is everywhere. Even mm. in the heart of a believer, there's still pockets of unbelief that haven't submitted totally to Christ. So we have to be teaching. We have to be calling people to repent so that whatever areas of unbelief that there are in our hearts are not able to grow and spread to other people because unbelief is contagious. Um, and, and that's where it's like at the institutional level. You get to a point to where you've accommodated unbelief for so long that you have 
either unbelievers or really squishy, weak believers that are now in positions of power where they get to determine the direction. And they now think, and often it's under the guise of mission, but they think, well, yes. this, this is what we need to do to reach people. We need to accommodate unbelief in order to reach people. That's exactly what it is in our day still, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mission, like mission has always been a, 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 a trap door mm. where you, you, you call the church to mission and mission is where you're, you're rubbing shoulders with unbelievers because you're wanting to reach them or serve them in some way. Um, and so it's like, well, how do we serve them? Well, we want to go go toward them. We want to become all things to all men. And you you end up um, having this mindset that I need to do everything I can to be become as like them as we can be in order to, to pull them in. I mean, the thing is, is that if they aren't tender, if they're hard hearted and, and they don't want to follow the Lord, then there's the, it, I mean, my Calvinist doctrine teaches me that there's it's impossible they might come to your church, but only in so far as the church has accommodated them to a level they feel comfortable, but there's no work of the spirit of God within them. And if there's not, then you've got a, uh, you've got a goat now in the flock and that goat might be a church member and that goat might even be such a successful person and valuable enough to the organization to where they'll make him a trustee or a deacon or an elder. And then you, that happens enough times. And then, the institution itself has been seized by unbelief, people that don't know Christ, but they're running a church. And that, I mean, it happens It happens in schools, Christian schools, Christian colleges. It happens in churches. It happens in mission organizations um, that you accommodate unbelief, and then you're just throwing the door open for this leaven to spread throughout your organization. Yeah, very often. So you want to watch out for this phrase, for the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are things we ought to do for the gospel, but they're defined by scripture, but people are coming up with quite a list of, oh, let's do this for the gospel. And it's really an accommodation. Let's do this for the, it's downplaying that. I'll give you an example. So there's a mega church down the street from where I'm sitting right now, uh, very large. Um, and a friend of mine used to be there. He and his family were there. And his son, his teenage son, had professed faith in Christ and was ready to get baptized. So on the day they were going to baptize his son, they're asking him in the back room. The, the boy getting baptized gets to talk a little bit, you know, gives the testimony a little bit. And they said, let's rehearse this one more time. What are you going to say when you go out there? And uh, somewhere in his talk, he said, you know, I'm just happy now. I think he concluded it with, I'm just happy that I won't have to go to hell now. And they said, oh, wait a minute. You can't say that. That would take a lot of explaining. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so huh. for, for the gospel— Let's not mention yeah. hell. Or if we do, we're going to have to really, really explain it to make it something that a worldling will, will be comfortable with and will like and will understand. So you have to, like, reframe hell and all kinds of other things. Good examples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah th- there's a text in Second Corinthians that has been really helpful for me on this point. And um, it is, for me, it, it is, I, I have really given a lot of thought to this verse in the last couple, three years especially, um, in light of what you're describing, um, it, it's first Second Corinthians four verse two. Paul's talking about his ministry and um, what they defending his ministry and how people are saved and that sort of thing. And then in verse two, he says, "But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth." 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he goes on and has lots of uh, what he what he says is that open statement of the truth. But I think that what happens in a lot of modern churches is exactly what Paul condemns here. There's a lot of churches that are in the name of reaching people. They're doing things that are disgraceful. They're underhanded. They're cunning. They're practicing cunning. They're tampering with God's word. And they are refusing to do what Paul says we must do, which is an open statement of the truth. That's that's nowhere to be found. So with this, I had a conversation with a with a church member once, and he was wrestling through some of these questions and had heard some criticisms directed towards me based on uh, things that I had preached, particularly about homosexuality. This guy has a brother who is in a homosexual uh, relationship right now. And so he's he's worried about him and this guy's got an evangelist heart and and i was telling him and i was he didn't give me the answer i expected i was expecting to have to correct him and i told him hey let's say that your brother happens to be in town and let's say he was like hey i want to go to church with you this week and let's say he happens to come to church with you and it just so happens to be that that's the week that i'm preaching on you know some topic related to homosexuality and i i preach an open statement of the truth right say this is sin it is uh a sin against god it, it is unnatural god calls it an abomination and there is there is hope to escape hell through faith in jesus christ if you repent i was expecting him to to respond like well i'd be kind of nervous i would kind of hope you wouldn't do that i would sort of hope you'd talk about you know anxiety or something safer um, yes, but, anxiety. He, but what he said was oh that would be great i would love that and I was like, okay, you've got a true heart huh. of a missionary because you want, you believe God and you want them to hear the thing that is most needful. And that's going to be a, a message of friction that's going to confront them in their sin. The thing that convicts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, our Calvinism. You and I are both Calvinists. We're both reformed in our theology. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in the matter of human salvation as in every other matter. And so a lot of this comes down to, do you really have Reformed theology or are you really Arminian in your theology? So the Arminian theology thinks we want to get people saved, so we have to cover up some of who God is. We have to hide from them some of what God says or else they'll never come to God. And we want to get them to come to God. When we're going to reveal the rest about God to them, I don't know. When does it ever come out? Well, probably not. <laughs> not but anyway, but we're reformed in our theology and we believe that if and when God is saving a soul, he gives them a love for himself. He gives them a love for his word. And whatever comes out of his word, they will bow and say, bless the Lord, this is going to be hard. This changed my whole life. I didn't realize I was getting into this, but hey, it's in God's word and Christ is my Lord now. So when God saves sinners, he gives them an appetite for what for the words that come out of his mouth. We can expect that. We don't need to hide those words, even yeah. just from the vantage point of we want to help them count the cost, right? Like yeah. they're thinking, I might become a believer. Can you tell me what's really in that book? What are the parts I might not like? What are the parts that yeah. might go against the grain of my soul and our culture and all that? And we ought to reveal those parts to them so they can make an informed decision. Say, well, no, we ought to hide those parts so they won't really get saved. They won't really get saved if you're hiding parts. That's right. So give them the whole counsel of God. And if the Lord is drawing them, he'll draw them, man. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. There's a change of the, of affection. Um, God, Jonathan Edwards, um, that was his theology that there's a, 
true religion is in our is in a new taste. It's a it's a it's a desire that is curated within, and it's something that only can be curated by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses the means of the preaching of the word. And so the word needs to be clear so that there is a there's something that the spirit is able to 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 use to testify to their heart and affirm it this is true and to create that that new affection that new taste in their heart um i've i've heard i've heard a little statement that i that i think is is very profound in that soft words produce hard hearts and hard words produce soft Ooh, hearts i haven't heard that say that yeah. again would you that's good soft words produce hard hearts and hard words produce soft hearts. Um, so I think like an idea of conviction of sin is is, is more minimized, uh, especially in evangelism now. Very much so. We don't think in terms of, I want this person who doesn't know Jesus to feel the weight of their sin so that they will cry out to God for mercy. Rather, it's all a matter of an invitation. I want to kind of slowly, gently reel them in, build the relationship. And there's never a moment of decision. There's never a, I mean, I, I've thought about this recently where you look at the the evangelistic appeals in the New Testament, it's a command. Hmm. Um, it's not, I, I want to invite you to consider something. Would you, would you think about this and pray about it and see what the Lord does? And it's no, like you need to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe, turn, yes. turn from your sinful ways and believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's a, that is what we see in the New Testament as being effective, but somehow we've got it into our minds that that's not effective. And I think what it is is that we judge effectiveness by how effective we are at creating false converts. Hmm. So whenever you can fill up a church full of false converts and you think that they're real converts, then you've congratulated yourself and thought, you know, I've cracked the code here where I know how hmm. to... I know how to evangelize because look successful. at all these people that have responded when all they've done is they've attended your show, your religious show where they're affirmed and coddled, but yes. those aren't a lot of times they're not real converts. And if you're, if that's your metric for what effective evangelism is, then there's no, there's no control group of actual evangelism, you know, preaching the gospel the way that we're called to faithfully. And it, I think in, in, in some of our smaller churches, they are, it, they are more effective at making actual converts because they're smaller because they're more faithful, but their faithfulness does lead to less impressive numbers. But the people that are being converted are truly being converted. They're truly yeah, giving their amen. lives to Christ. Yeah. Not to say, I think you'll agree with this, not to say that you can't have a mega church. You, you, not to say you can't have a mega church that's faithful. There are mega churches that are faithful. Like Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur pastors mm -hmm. six thousand people, it definitely qualifies as a mega church. I think they're pretty hardcore. They're pretty faithful. They're pretty, you know, open statement of the truth people. So you can have that. But I'm I'm going to bet I'm no expert on this. I'm going to bet they're the exception and not the norm. Yeah. You agree? Well, John MacArthur, I think, is the exception. God yeah, does is, raise up certain leaders of extraordinary ability and faithfulness and uses them. Yeah. And there's one example. I love, I love guys like John MacArthur. Oh, amen. So in, in some private exchange, you and me offline, you showed me 
a graphic that has to do with the four stages of institutional decline. I believe you got it from somebody else. Theological mom, is that who that is? Yeah. Give her credit. All right. Yeah, my yeah. wife, my wife, uh, she really is into theology, mom. She showed it to me. So I went and checked out theology, mom, and thought, oh, that's cool. All right, good. So hats off to her. But tell us about those four stages of institutional decline, and we'll actually show a little graphic here and there as you talk about it for our people to see. Yeah. So the the four stages are um, so there. We're we're assuming then we're, like we're in a church or maybe like a Christian school, Christian college. But the first stage, and these are steps down deeper into decline. So the first stage is to publicly affirm clear biblical positions. So what they'll say, like their, their PR messaging are things that, you know, your typical conservative faithful believer can affirm, but there might be, may not, may not be exactly what is believed by the leadership. Um, but clear open statement of the truth that could be stage one. Um, and this, and the statements are on, matters of controversy mm. so it's mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you were faithful on if you're like hey we're anti-slavery well good for you so is everybody else <laughs> but if you're if you're unwilling so like the stage one is like they're taking clear stands on issues of relevance and urgency in our current moment yes. so we're opposed to homosexual lifestyles lgbtq we're not in favor of that we're not in favor of critical race theory or social justice uh you know, that, that sort of thing. Stage two is there is silence. So they're no longer, uh, they're no longer stating it on those Um, issues. Yeah. So you mentioned John MacArthur. Let's just say for the sake of argument that there's some, there's some urgent issue and they're curiously silent about it. Um, when they have a reputation for being bold, you know, that could be something like, okay, they, they have been faithful before, but now it's a little different. So, they might still hold officially to some public statement of faith, but any issue that's controversial or could be considered political or that might just rub people the wrong way, they're not going to be as vocal about it, if at all. And I think usually it's there, there's some there's something going on internally that makes them want to avoid that. It's just a pain avoidance. Hmm. So if you're going to make a statement about homosexuality or abortion or gay marriage or whatever, um, or even, you know, about COVID policies, things like that, that were, hmm. you know, brand new. If you're unwilling to do it, why is that? Um, is it because you want to avoid embarrassment? It could be a personal thing. You just don't have the courage. It could be you you agree with it personally, but maybe your wife doesn't. Maybe your wife is really, she's kind of become a crusader for that thing that you're personally mm-hmm. opposed to, but she's really into. could be you've got a child, like, you know, a lot of I think like a lot of times there's a, there's a gay kid and then the parent comes out as gay because they don't want to lose the relationship, Mm -hmm. but there's some silence and the silence is a tell. Might be because half of your elders are on the other side of that issue now. Yep. And so you just can't, you can't talk about it. Yep. Yeah. Because like you want to present a unified front to the church and you don't want to present to your church some, uh, some, some division about an issue that's really important. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of times like, well, we're working this out behind the scenes, but we're not going to talk about it openly. Um, and that, that's a great, that's a great example. Um, and then stage three is shifts within the institution. Um, and, but they're quiet. Um, so the, the progressive minded people, 
they they often find their way into these mm-hmm. places like HR departments, management departments, uh, tenured professorships. Uh, they're positions of influence and power, and those institutional shifts are hidden from conservative donors. And that's because the conservatives are naive enough to think that they're still faithful. Hmm. And the silence is taken as everything's good. All they good. haven't they yeah. haven't denied anything. So it's like they haven't denied the Bible. Show me their statement on their website where they denied the Bible. Therefore, they must be totally faithful and biblical and orthodox in all ways. That's Conservatives can be naive. Uh, I, I can't count myself among them. Uh, we can be naive because we want to believe the best in people, but that's often just not the case. Hmm. And then... But the, but these shifts are happening behind the scenes. Um, but it's and, quiet so far. Quiet. And then finally, the, they say the quiet part out loud. It, it comes out in the open. And the institution, they uh, they start to celebrate sin more openly. And they'll do this. Uh, you know, they might tell their employees and donors that love your neighbor means they must celebrate the courage of people who affirm the opposite of the positions mentioned in the stage one. Mm, you like that. <laughs> um, and, and usually love, it, it becomes vague and squishy and subjective. Uh, and that's what liberals are great. Liberals are emotional thinkers by and large. They, they tend to yep. be emotional thinkers. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with hard truths. There's, there's some, there's some difficulty about um, just thinking rationally and the discipline to do that. And they, they will say things like, well, this is the way of Jesus. This is what love would do. We need to, you know, listen, you know, follow the red letters of the Bible. Or, or a recent nationally known mega pastor church, mega church pastor says, uh, we, we decided long ago that we draw circles, not lines. Familiar with that yeah. one? Yeah. yeah. Like we're inclusive. <laughs> we're just going to include everybody. We draw circles. But Jesus drew lines. Yes. <laughs> sheep and goats. And uh, I mean, there's like so many times where Jesus drew lines and that's the sort of thing. It sounds good. And people that, that want to believe, and that's the thing. It's like, we all have incentives and we, I think we're maybe a little ignorant of our own incentives. We want to believe somebody's faithful. We want to believe somebody is solid. And when somebody can just throw us a bone, usually it's like a, a liberal person, they can throw a bone to the conservatives to appease them and get, make them think, okay, well, you know, I was concerned there for a minute, but everything's on the up and up now. Hmm. When really, it's just like, it's no, not. you're being duped. <clears throat> yep. you're, you're being naive. Yep. So those right, are the four stages. Those Excellent. Thank you for sharing those. And I'm going to take us to a last question, and that is, we've, kind of, we've touched on this, but let's, let's make it a point here. What do pastors and churches need to do in order not to go liberal, not to go progressive? Let's start with pastors. We've kind of said it, but let's say it clearly. What do pastors need to do so that your church and your people don't go liberal on you? Yeah. Yeah, I I think pastors have to take the arrows uh, for their people. And that means that, let's say you have a, if a pastor is vocal, and silence, you know, the, is the kind of a theme through these four stages. How, what do you, where are you silent and where are you vocal? I think for a pastor to be vocal on pressing issues that are controversial, but also are of urgency within the church and helping to keep her faithful, they can't be silent. Um, I've seen a little trick that some pastors will do is we, we handle this relationally. We do this one-on-one. And Uh. what you're doing there is like, I don't have the guts to say this publicly and I don't want to deal with the fallout and the controversy of of dealing with it publicly, but I can still 
have the I, I could still give myself the um, the credibility of being able to tell people, hey, you know, I'm not I'm not gay affirming, you know, like I've, I've talked to all these different people about it and we've handled this, you know, behind closed doors. And because, you know, that's where that, you know, that's what love does. You know, we're we, we deal with things one on one as a matter of pastoral sensitivity. But, but the thing is, like, I think a lot of pastors don't understand the social phenomena of what preaching does. Mm, good. So if, talk about so that. Yeah. If I were to go go through my church or your church, let, let's just say my own church, and nobody knows really where we stand on homosexuality, and I go to every individual in the church and I have a meeting with them one on one, I'm like, I want you to know that I am not in favor of homosexual relationships. I think God is opposed to that. And I have that same conversation with every member of my church. Um, what that does is that individually that that settles that individual person's mind, but it doesn't have any culture shaping effect because right. the truth has not been acknowledged with all the people present knowing, hey, I heard Pastor Michael say this, and he said this when she was there, and he was there, and he was there, and they were there, and we can refer back to it. Hey, do you remember back in October, Pastor Michael said this thing? So we know this is where he stands, and because we all heard it together, then now we know this is where we stand. This is our position. We have affirmed it publicly. Yes. Yeah. And so what that does is that that puts anybody who doesn't agree, it puts them on notice. Yes. That Very important. That, yeah, you, you, you either have to repent and change um or you're 11. it's not going to um, work for you here yeah so so yeah. this is we're not going to accommodate this because this is a open statement of truth where you know where we stand and we're not silent on it um and that that does build culture and i think generally speaking people aren't going to stick their neck out further than they see their pastor sticking his neck mm. out hmm. so like so i i'm fairly active on social media and i i i i and some of my people in my church, they they follow the things I say on Twitter. And uh, I think there, there might be some critics that think that that I'm doing it to be provocative and that, you know, I just like getting a rise out of people. And that's 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 not the, the goal. The goal is I want to I want to carve out a space where I have a as public a, a platform as I personally have. I've carved out a space where I said, here are the boundaries of my belief. Here's what I stand for. Um, and then that that has a reinforcing effect for people within my church. So they know he's out there saying these things in a very public place and taking, you know, taking the heat and the hate from people. So they know and that that gives a bit of a bit of a comfort. It's like, you know, that here in the sheep pen, uh, all of us are safe because the shepherd is out there chasing off the wolves and he is he is on the edge. He's At on the, the margin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Establishing that boundary. Um, and that, and I do it for that reason. And also for people that are in liberal churches, um, I'm, I'm putting up a signal flare and letting people know, like there's safe pasture here. There's green grass here where huh. you will be fed the scripture, um, and you'll be faithfully shepherded. So I'm, and, and also Ed, I, I do want, I, I want my, my boldness online, um, and in other places to give courage to uh, to other pastors, other mm -hmm. leaders. Um, I think that's, I don't know if this is etymo etymologically correct, but uh, I, I take encouragement to mean it's like, if I want to encourage you, that means I'm, I am giving you courage. That I'm, is correct. I'm, that's etymologically correct. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. I heard that once and I thought it sounded good. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Yeah, so. absolutely. So uh, I want to restate something you said, and that is uh, w- there is a danger in a time when there's something afoot in our culture. Um, the bigger it gets out there, the more powerful it gets out there, the more it's trying to show up inside of your church, the more it's trying to come in here. So when something's going on out there, you can be sure it's going to be working its way in here. And if you just allow it to, you're silent, you don't talk about it, you don't deal with people, you don't preach about it, then more are going to come in. And then more are going to be, and more of your people will, will, will have it. And pretty soon, you've got a cadre of, uh, what should I call it, a cadre of badness in your church. You've got you got <laughs> eleven. A, yeah, you've got 11. That's right. You're supposed to root out the 11. But um, you have to weed out progressively minded people before they get such a big lump of themselves that now they've got power, now they've got clout, now your church is in danger, now you might lose the whole thing, now they might get rid of you, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So you have to systematically weed out progressively-minded people by uh, by lobbing a shell across their bow from the pulpit. Yeah. From the pulpit. Like you said, one-on-one is not going to do it. The whole church needs to be there to witness the event. Hey, we Mm -hmm. publicly said, we go there. We're with our pastor. We agree with him. And you're signaling to the progressive person, all right, I'm going to take my ducks and go float them somewhere else here. Yeah. If you don't don't do that, then the progressive person, if they're they're kind of coddled and affirmed and accommodated, then they settle in, they get comfortable, they meet people, they make friends, they join small groups, uh, maybe they teach classes. Then they and, want to be an elder. Yeah, and, and they've not been, and, and the thing is like they, it's like, like with any child, um, children will test the limits until they run up against the consequence. Mm-hmm. That's discipline, that's discipline with a child. Here's a consequence, and that lets you know, okay, there's here is here is something that will be enforced. Yeah, There are certain, Issues, doctrines that I'll people in my church may hold that I disagree with that I don't see any need to enforce. Right, can tolerate. So, yeah, I'm just like, hey, you you have a different view on this, and most of the time those issues are inconsequential. But there's a reason why the Bible is so uh, adamant about particular p- sin patterns. Often, it's sexuality is is one of the most common, but yeah. the Bible is really adamant because these things are really dangerous. And so, Second Timothy uh, three talks about the value of scripture but it's for it's for establishing these boundaries and the words he uses for teaching reproof correction training and righteousness it it kind of says here's here here's here's some boundary markers and i want to teach and i want to reprove and i want to correct and i want to train it kind of says here's here i want to draw lines and not just circles i'm going to set up uh boundaries and says like if if you go across here this will you will encounter correction there um, and that is that is loving. And the amazing thing is that the sheep love that kind of shepherding. True sheep, they want to be corrected. They do. Don't they? Bring, um, they invite their friends. Hey, we're getting yeah. it over at our church, right? <laughs> That's right. It's, it, it's like it's like you know, if you leave a football game and there was a, an amazing play, you're talking about. Oh, remember that one time on fourth down they went for it. Same thing at a church. Like you know, people leave like, oh boy, I got convicted today. Let me tell you, the spirit's doing overtime on me, and that. That's because they they want to grow. They want to change because they love their Lord and they want to be conformed into his image and faithful shepherding will help them. Um, and so that's, I think, what shepherds need to do, pastors. If, if, if nothing else is you cannot be silent on the most pressing issues of our day. Yeah. If, if you're silent, then your people will be vulnerable to whatever the world is teaching them instead. Totally agree. Huge amen. 
Michael, we're about out of time. Thank you for being here. We have talked about why do churches and Christians go liberal and how to keep a church and Christians from going liberal. Thank you for helping our people. Thank you for helping our listeners. Been wonderful. Love to have you again sometime. Let's do this again. Uh, do you have any closing words you want to say? Any, any final thoughts? Anything you want to leave with us? No. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate your ministry. Thank you for this podcast and for having me on. It's, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be with you. Awesome, brother. That's it for Grounded today. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>